This is Sunday Morning Magazine with your host, Rodney Lear. And welcome back to Sunday Morning Magazine. On the phone with me now is New York Times bestselling author, Christopher Paul Curtis. It's our pleasure to welcome Christopher to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get started as a writer? What piqued your interest in writing? Well, I was working in a factory in my hometown of Flint, Michigan. And uh, during my breaks, I would uh, sit down and write. And I found out that if I wrote, it took me away from being in that factory. I hated being in there, but I'd worked there for 13 years. And the job I had, we used to double up, which means instead of doing every other job, uh, I'd do 30 in a row, and then my friend would do 30 in a row. So out of each day, I would spend half the day sitting down writing. And that kind of helped me cope with uh, getting through the factory and dealing with the day-to-day mundane repetition and the mind-numbing nothingness of being in the factory. Okay, so what was your first book published? The first book was published in 1995, and it was called The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. So let me ask you this now. Where do you do most of your writing? I do most of my writing at the uh, either the public library or at the University of Windsor Library. For some reason, libraries seem to be the place that I I'm most comfortable in and that I enjoy writing. I go usually at about 8 in the morning, and then I write till 11.30 or so, and then I go play basketball. And that period I call my creative period. And during that time, wherever the story wants to go, I let it go. I don't try to corral it in. I don't say to myself, you know, wait a minute, this is off on a tangent. This is never going to be in the book. I've learned that if I let the story go, uh, I'm gaining background information on my characters. Then the next morning, I wake up at 5 o'clock. Probably the worst habit I developed while working in that factory in Flint for 13 years was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I just can't break that habit. So 5 o'clock is when I do my editorial work. It's when I take what I've written the day before and try to beat it into the, uh, the form of a story. And again, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to Newbery Medal Award-winning author Christopher Paul Curtis. He's here this morning to talk about his latest book. Now, you just talked about how you do most of your writing at the public library. What is it about the library that inspires you to write? Well, Rodney, when I first uh, decided to try to write a book, I took a year off work, and I realized that I needed to go somewhere. I couldn't do it at home because then that becomes like a year vacation because there'd always be something, a phone ringing or, you know, there'd be some food that need to be eaten downstairs or I need to look something up on the computer. So I realized since I'm taking a year off work, I have to treat this like a job. Uh, And I was working at a warehouse at that time unloading trucks. I didn't like my boss. I didn't like my job, but I went every day and I gave her the respect that she deserved. So now that I was taking time off myself, I was my own boss, and I had to give myself the same respect. I had to demand that I go to work every day, that I take care of business while I was there. And by going to the library, uh, it was quiet enough uh, to be somewhere that I could go every day, look at it as a job, and just sit there and do my work. So uh, the library worked out to be the place. I'm, I'm not sure why. You know, I could have gone to a mall or a coffee shop or something, but... Uh, the the library was uh, what attracted me. So tell us about some of the books that you've written over the years, and tell us what your inspiration are. How do you decide on what topics you're going to write about? Okay, my second book uh, is called Bud Not Buddy, and it's the story of a 10-year-old orphan 
in during the Great Depression in Flint, Michigan, and it's about his search to find his father. Uh, lots of times when I speak to children about writing and the writing process, they say, where do your ideas come from? Uh, my problem is I get too many ideas. You have to cull the ideas out and only come up with a few. So uh, what really started that story was I had gone to a family reunion in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the other side of the state, and people started talking about a grandfather of mine, my father's grandfather, my father's father. And during the 1930s, he had a big band, and he named his big band Herman Curtis and the Dusky Devastators of the Depression. And I just thought that was the coolest name for a band. So I went home, and I went to the library, and I started to write. I was working on another thing. I was working on a story about the sit-down strike that took place at the factory that I was working at. But uh, I like to have two things going on at the same time. So I started writing the story about a uh, little boy and this band. But as the story developed, this is one of the things I love about writing, Rodney, is that I, I never know where the story is going to go. Uh, I have an idea. I let the idea grow and flourish, and you're surprised at where it goes. In the story, which I thought was going to be about my grandfather as a 10-year-old boy, he was still there, but he was a crusty old miserable musician who had a big band, and the uh, 10-year-old boy was just this orphan boy, the voice that came to me. I get the ideas from everywhere. I, everywhere I go, I can have an idea just from a conversation. My problem is not finding something to write about. I think once you practice at it enough, anything can trigger something else. A dialogue can trigger something else, just a little conversation between two people. And so what I'm hearing from you is when you sit down to write the book, you yourself, you don't even know how the story is going to end. And I think that's really fascinating. That's exactly right. I, I have an idea how I think it's going to end, but the delightful thing about writing and the surprising thing is once you develop that character, it seems as though the character tells you, okay, you might think it ends this way, but it doesn't end this way. This is the way it ends, and the story becomes something else. And, you know, I know it's all uh, mental tricks that you play on yourself, but it's a lot of fun. I have a riot. I, uh, when I'm sitting down in the library writing, I'm laughing. I'm crying some of the time. I just have a lot of fun doing it because I'm discovering, as the story goes, what happens next. And uh, you get to the point where you enjoy going because, it's like, uh, I, you know, I, I hate to say this, but it's sort of like a soap opera because you don't know what's going to happen next, but you want to keep coming back. And I want to keep coming back, getting in contact with the character who's telling me about the story and finding out where it ends up. And again, we're speaking to author Christopher Paul Curtis. Now, Christopher, most of your books are historical fiction. What draws you to that genre and why do you so often write historical fiction? Once again, I don't know. I, I think growing up, uh, I was interested in history. I, my parents were both avid readers and would talk about things that happened in the past, uh, you know, World War II. These were big events, the Depression, the Civil Rights Movement. All of these were big events in their life. And as a young person, you kind of, by osmosis, you get a feeling for that. So I've always enjoyed writing about uh, history because in many ways, history is nothing but an interpretation of what happened. And by writing historical fiction, you know, I'm putting my little interpretation on what happened, too. Even though it's done through uh, one character, uh, they visualize things, and hopefully I can make the readers visualize and get a closer idea of what was going on. The ideal thing that could happen for me, Rodney, is when a, a young person reads my, one of my books, 
is, number one, that they enjoy it, they have a good time with it, they laugh, they have fun, you know, it moves them. But I hope that after all that is done, at the end of the story, they might say something like, wow, you mean this really happened back in uh, the 1930s? There was the Depression people, kids my age, there were hundreds of thousands of them on the road, and hopefully they'll look at another book about the time, or they'll uh, go to a historical uh, book on the time. And uh, that's ideally what I would like to happen, about all the time periods I write. I don't deliberately choose a period. It's just these things come to me, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like catching a train. You, Whichever train comes along, you catch it, and that seems to be the train that uh, I'm catching right now, and I love it. So, Christopher, again, you write a lot of historical fiction. Tell us about the amount of research that goes into these books. Okay, it depends on the time period. If it's uh, something that... I'm familiar with, like my first book, 1963. I was 10 years old in 1963, the same time as the main character. So I had kind of an edge on that. But then when it comes to the Depression or to with, uh, as in Elijah Buxton, the Underground Railroad and slavery, I do have to go do research. When I'm doing the research, what I'm looking for, though, most times, I'm trying to get a feel for the language of the time. Uh, The book written in the 1930s, I want the people to sound authentic. Uh, I think that makes the book more believable if the people sound authentic. You, you, know, you don't have uh, somebody uh, saying something that is a, a term from today. The language changes year to year and decade to decade. So I'll, I'll go back and for the 30s I would go and I'd read books that were written in the 30s. Uh, there were a lot of movies that were made in the 30s. I'd try to catch the language from that. I'd listen to songs that were written in the 30s. Everything to just try to get the feel of the language. And same thing with Elijah of Buxton, which takes place in the 1860s. I would uh, go back and read books at that time, Huckleberry Finn, any kind of a book where there was somebody who was good at writing a particular dialect. I would read the book and try to absorb the language. Uh, My research mostly is not so much about historical events, even though that is important and I try to get things as accurately as I can, what I'm really looking for when I do research is to try to hear how that character would be speaking, what their actual voice would sound like. Now, Christopher, throughout your career, you have won a Newbery Award. You've also won the Coretta Scott King Award. Tell us about these awards, and tell us, most importantly, about the significance behind these awards, because just not anybody wins these awards. They they mean a lot. Uh, Writing is a, a solitary profession, Most of the time you're by yourself, you're sitting down writing, and I think most writers are insecure. I know I am. I'll write something, and I'll read it, and I'll say to myself, oh, this is really good. And then a day later, I'll read the same passage again, and I'll say, oh, my goodness, what a piece of trash. So you have to find the balance. And when you get awards like this, it says, you know, it's it's good to get the, uh, the recognition because what it's saying is what you're doing is something worthwhile, that you're not just sitting there, sitting in the library, laughing and crying and scribbling in a notebook. You're, you're producing something that's worthwhile. So uh, awards like this are very important for getting your book out so that more people can see it. When you win a Newbery Award, your book is in every library and every school in the country. Uh, it does great things for the sales of your book. And uh, it's just it, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling to know that you're a member of a relatively small club. I think the Newberry's been going for 70-some years, 
and there are probably 60-some people in that time who have uh, won the award. And there are four or 5,000 books a year that are written. So to be named the most significant contribution is a real accolade, and it's something I'm very proud of. Now, Christopher, you write for young people. What is it that you enjoy most about writing for that age group, that genre? What do you enjoy most about that? Well, you know, Rodney, when I'm writing, I don't sit down and say, all right, I'm going to write this for young people. What I do is I try to tell a story. When I was writing the first story, uh, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, even though the narrator was 10 years old, I made a conscious decision that it was not a book for children. I thought it was a book more for adults, but just told by a 10-year-old. When I sent it into the publisher, they said that there were a couple scenes that were too intense for children, and that um, one of the main actors in the book is a 13-year-old semi-juvenile delinquent from Flint, Michigan. And I had his language very much like the language of a semi-juvenile delinquent from Flint, Michigan would be like. And it was a little much for uh, young people. So we changed those two things. But other than that, I, I believe a good story can be read by anybody, by any age. Um, I think a lot of times people when they categorize stuff as young adult or for middle readers, uh, a lot of it gets overlooked because it's, it's a way of uh, really it, somehow it, it downplays the book. So when I write, I'm trying to tell a good story. I'm trying to tell something that I as an adult would like. When my writing is uh, there are parts of it that children won't understand, but not enough to distract them. It's just little things in there to salt it up with for adults so that, you know, an adult will understand this. And maybe when the child reads it again later, they'll get it. But uh, I, I don't write particularly for children. I just write to myself mainly, and then I kind of tone it to the point where it is uh, something that is acceptable or appropriate for children. And again, in case you're just tuning in, we're speaking to author Christopher Paul Curtis. For more information on Christopher or more information on any of our guests this morning, all you have to do is go to our Facebook page, Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Now you're here this morning to talk about your book, Elijah of Buxton. Tell us about the book. I had always wanted to write something about slavery, a very, very important part of American history. But I, I write first person, so I have a narrator who's telling the story. And to try to have a narrator who had been a slave, I think, would be extremely difficult because a person who has been enslaved has been so dehumanized and so debased that I don't think they'd make a good narrator. Uh, they're, they have been stripped of everything, really. Uh, which is an absolute necessity if you're going to be a slave. And the sad thing is you have to pass this on to your child if you want your child to live. So I wanted to do something about slavery, couldn't figure out a way in the door. Uh, I live in Windsor, Ontario now, which is right across the river from Detroit in Canada. And it's an area where many people from the Underground Railroad came. And I was driving to Toronto one day from my home here in Windsor, and I saw uh, a sign saying Buxton Historical Museum. You know, I knew a little bit about Buxton, so I pulled off to the side of the road, and uh, Buxton was this community that's about 40 miles from Detroit in Canada, and during the 1850s, there were close to 2,000 escaped former slaves living in this utopia. And I, I say it's a utopia, and it really was, especially for somebody who'd been brought up in bondage. Uh, There was no crime. They had very specific rules that they had to follow. 
when they came, they had to purchase a 50-acre plot of land. They had to clear it. They had to drain it. They planted crops. They were given a loan to start this, a very low-interest rate loan. Uh, they paid their loans back. They accepted no charity. It was a thriving community with a great, great school system. The school system was so good that white farmers from cities around Buxton, like Chatham, would take their kids out of the white schools and get them to this academy in Buxton where they were learning trigonometry and Greek and Latin, and it was a, a beautiful place. So I had the place. I had the desire to write something about slavery. All I needed now was the way in, and I imagined to myself, what about the first child who was born free in this place? What would they be like? And by using that child as the narrator, I was able to examine slavery, and I even take the child back into the United States for a minute to, uh, on a quest for something, and uh, so I could really look at the horrors of slavery and uh, bring the child back out. And this child was kind of clean, really. He wasn't tainted by slavery. His parents, of course, were all the adults in the community, and many of the children were, but this was a child who came with a clean slate. He had clean eyes, and I could explore slavery and uh, show something of what it must have been like to have been the first freeborn child. Okay, and you touched on it, but tell us more about the storyline of the book. Uh, as I say, the book is narrated by 10-year-old Elijah. Elijah has two things that he's well known for in the community of Buxton. The first is that he was the first child born free there, and the second thing is, now, uh, Buxton was well known in the United States. Uh, slave communities and freed black communities knew about Buxton. Um, Frederick Douglass visited several times. John Brown visited and actually planned the raid on Harper's Ferry about 10 miles away in Chatham, Ontario. One of the first people to die in the raid on Harper's Ferry was a man from Buxton. So in the story, the second thing that Elijah is known for, when he was a baby, Frederick Douglass came to a celebration of this new child, lifted Elijah over his head and said, this is what we have struggled for. This is what we have fought to be free for. This is our future. And as Frederick Douglass was holding Elijah over his head, Elijah throws up on Frederick Douglass. So that's the second thing he's known for. He's not been able to live that down. He gets teased about it constantly. But uh, the story is mostly about Elijah's day-to-day -day life, and it tells about the, li the uh, lives of the other people there, the adults. One of Elijah's older friends, adult friends, is saving money to buy his family out of slavery. He finally gets enough money. He gives it to this man that's known as the preacher, who's not actually a preacher and not actually a member of the Buxton community. And the man goes to Michigan and steals the money. Uh, the story takes off when Elijah and his friend go to Michigan to try to find this preacher. And uh, as I said, I'm able to touch on the horrors of slavery with this. And again, we're speaking to author Christopher Paul Curtis, now, the book is set in pre-Civil War times. How relevant is this book for young people today? How can they connect with this character and the morals of this character in modern-day times? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that is quite common now is for, pre for the previous generation to say to the upcoming generation, you know what, we did things differently. And this is going way, way back, and they did things very differently. So I hope that uh, people can see what cooperation, where this uh, 
group of black people working together what they were able to accomplish by helping each other, by being there for each other, by sharing things, uh, by not being selfish, uh, by working hard. I hope that people can see, you know, maybe there's some uh, truth in that, there's some good in that, that if you work hard for things, you never know what you might be able to accomplish. And again, in case you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Sunday Morning Magazine. I'm Rodney Lear. More information on the show, more information on our guests can always be found on our Facebook page. Like us and visit us at Sunday Morning Magazine with Rodney Lear on Facebook. Head there now and like us there now. On the phone with us this morning is Newberry Honor winning author Christopher Paul Curtis. The title of the book is Elijah of Buxton. So as I mentioned earlier, the book has won multiple awards as a New York Times bestselling book. Why do you think so many people have connected with this book? Yeah, you know, I'm probably the worst person to ask that, but I, <laughs> I, I really think that uh, any story that where people can connect with the characters, that you're, you're learning something without getting the feeling that someone's sitting over you with a ruler saying, study this, that the lesson is coming naturally and easily, that it's something that's easy to read, that it's fun to read, but it's also something that is teaching in somehow. I, I'm hoping that that's the reason that it gets uh, uh, the accolades that it has gotten. I I love writing. I work hard at it, but I enjoy it. I have a lot of fun when I do it. So um, hopefully that some of the joy uh, that I'm putting into the story and some of the deep feelings I have about what I'm writing about, I hope that other people are picking up on that. And uh, I, I guess the, the awards and the recognition are a sign that this is coming true. And again, this morning, we're speaking to author Christopher Paul Curtis. Now, for parents out there listening this morning, and you write for young adults, what advice would you give to parents to help them motivate their teens to read more? You know what? I think that the main thing that we can do is teachers, writers, and parents, we have to work as a team. Um, I'm the person who has to supply books that kids want to read and the kids can draw something from. I know when I was growing up, uh, there weren't many books that were for, by, or about African-American people. And it, w- it made it in many ways so that I didn't want to read. You know, there are a lot of things I just didn't want to read. And uh, by having these books, I'm hoping that it uh, makes it so the kids want to read. So my, my thing to parents is, you know, look at the American Library Association at the books that they recommend Look at the Coretta Scott King Award, the books that they recommend, because those are books generally that will have quality and where you can uh, learn things. So hopefully uh, we can work as a team and get it done, because if our kids can read well and if they can write well, they can accomplish anything. My job of the team is to write the books. The teacher's job is to present it to them. The parent's job is to... Uh, make it so that it's easy for them. Let the kids read. Take the, you know, take, snatch that PlayStation away from those little knuckleheads for a minute and give them a book. All right, and with that, we're out of time this morning. Christopher, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Oh, thank you, Rodney. And uh, keep up the good work and keep getting the word out about books. It's uh, a great thing that you're doing. And, you know, as you say, parents have to uh, present the books and make it easy for the kids to read. Uh, let them see you read. I think that's the best thing that parents can do. And finally, if our listeners would like to find out more about Christopher Paul Curtis, the author, how can they find out more? Uh, my website is nobodybutcurtis.com. 
nobodybutcurtis.com. All right. Thanks for taking time to talk to us. Rodney, thank you very much. We've been speaking to author Christopher Paul Curtis. We'll be back with more Sunday Morning Magazine right after this. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.